Our scripture reading today will be from Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Ezra 1, 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Ju Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Amen. It is wonderful to be together this morning, isn't it? Amen. For me more so maybe than for you, because the very fact that I'm here means that there is a high probability I won't have to go to urgent care or the emergency room with any member of my family this week. If you're not aware of it, my family has traveled six times since May of last year, and five of those times someone has had to go either to the urgent care or emergency room during the course of that trip or immediately preceding that trip, and the most recent was just a week ago Saturday when I had to take Micah. And so it is wonderful to be in the safety of my Buford family today, and uh, I solicit your prayers that maybe we can stay healthy for a while, especially right now because Sarah is actually out of town on her own. She is back in Arkansas helping her parents uh, pack up their house because her parents are looking to move here uh, to live closer to us or with us, one or the other, we'll find out. And um, so... We solicit your prayers to be with Sarah as she's uh, traveling and, and as, as I'm on my own with the two uh, children and uh, that uh, all will go well there. You may have noticed we opened the book of Ezra today. Today I'm going to introduce a new sermon series that we're going to be engaging in for several weeks. It's going to be a study of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now you may be wondering why Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, one reason is because Ezra and Nehemiah are the subject matter of next year's Last Leaders Convention and Program and Ministry that we're a part of, and I felt like that a study of these two books would be beneficial for the parents and participants of that program to help encourage and promote um, this, these two books that you'll be writing speeches from, that you'll be preparing for in Bible Bowl, and, and so on. So that's one reason. But the other reason is because I think Ezra and Nehemiah are two of the most overlooked books in the Bible. When you turn to Ezra and Nehemiah, there are no big stories, famous stories. There's no David and Goliath level stories. 
there's a lot of genealogies, there's a lot of boring lists, and so they're books that you just don't go to very often. But here's the thing. Ezra and Nehemiah, they are rich with life applications. And that's why we're going to study the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, for the next several weeks. Here's what you need to know in particular about these two books. They are really focused on construction. Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of three different groups that are going to travel to Jerusalem after their exile, and they're going to rebuild something. Here's a real quick overview of it. The first group that goes back is going to go under the leadership of Zerubbabel Jeshua. And they're going to go back and they're going to rebuild the temple that was torn down when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem captive. The second group is going to go back under the leadership of Ezra. And Ezra's objective is to rebuild the Jewish faith system, to rebuild the Jewish religion. And what I mean by that is he's going to go back and reinstate Mosaic law, and he's going to get the people to recommit to Mosaic law, and and, and the practice of covenant keeping is going to be rebuilt. And the third group that's going to go back will go back under the leadership of Nehemiah, and they'll go back with the objective of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That's the general overview of what's going to happen between these two books. Everything has a rebuilding element to it. And so we're going to examine these texts with this construction motif that permeates them. And we're going to examine and and try to discover how we can apply their divinely inspired message to our lives today. Because let's face it, we're all under construction. There's this interesting term Paul uses in reference to Christians in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. He calls us God's workmanship. Workmanship. He says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 imply that God created us with a final product in mind. So as we examine our under-construction lives, we do so recognizing that God is the one who's designed them, and therefore He's the only one who should dictate how we construct them. But He needs our our cooperation to bring His design into fruition. And so we're going to examine Ezra and Nehemiah and see what it's going to take for our lives to be built the way that God designed. But before we dive into the text of these two books, there are a few things you need to know about Ezra and Nehemiah. First, you need to understand that in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are combined. What I mean is that in the Jewish text of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. If you were to go pick up the scroll of these books to read it in synagogue, you'd be picking up the same scroll because they were one scroll. And originally, this combined work was simply called Ezra. There was no Ezra and Nehemiah. It was just Ezra. Ezra chapter 10 is the last chapter of the book of Ezra. Nehemiah chapter 1 is obviously the first book, chapter of Nehemiah. But in the Hebrew Bible, those two chapters connect. There's no break between them. It's all one text. 
And why is that worth mentioning? Why bring that up? The reason this matters is because the books of Ezra and Nehemiah should be studied together since they originally were together. And that's why I'm not treating them independently in this series. I'm treating them as a unit. The other thing you need to know about Ezra and Nehemiah, the second thing you need to know is that Ezra and Nehemiah are a continuation of events recorded in Chronicles. What's interesting is that Ezra and Nehemiah were probably written before the two texts were written. Because in the Hebrew Bible, they're placed chronologically before 1st and 2nd Chronicles. But if you go from a timetable standpoint, 1st and 2nd Chronicles precede the, ev- the events of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, precede the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. And here's how we know this. Go to 2nd Chronicles chapter 36 real quick. 2nd Chronicles chapter 36, look at the last two verses of that book. 2nd Chronicles. 36 is verse 22 and 23, I believe. Scan those verses just due to the sake of time and need to uh, get through a lot of material this morning. We're not going to read those, but if you scan those two verses, then what I want you to do is turn the page. You should be in Ezra chapter 1 now. Ezra chapter 1, look at the first three verses. Scan the first three verses and you know what you're going to find? They are identical. The last two verses of 2 Chronicles are repeats of the first half verses of Ezra chapter 1. Exact same. Identical. And what that communicates to you and I, us as the readers, is that we're continuing the events of Chronicles into the book of Ezra. And why that matters. It matters because when you think about the book of Chronicles, the two texts of Chronicles, they start Chronicles chapter 1 with a genealogy from Adam going all the way to David by the end of chapter 2. And then by chapter 11, you have, a, you have a bunch more genealogies, and then you get to chapter 11, David's anointed king. And from there, the book of Chronicles gives the history of the kingdom of Israel from the time of David until its demise under the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You have the ongoing story in the book of Chronicles from the origin of Adam through to the demise of Jerusalem of God working in the lives of his people. And Chronicles ends with those people in captivity and God's temple destroyed. And it seems all gloom and doom until you read those last two verses of 2 Chronicles. And they give hope. Because they tell of Darius issuing this decree to let the people, not Darius, Cyrus issuing this decree to let God's people return to that land, the promised land, and rebuild his temple. And Ezra comes in, starting at that very point of hope and telling us the rest of the story. Ezra and Nehemiah are the Paul Harvey of the Old Testament. Without them, you don't get the rest of the story. Without them, you don't find out how it turned out for God's people and how he was able to continue his plan of redemption even after a period of captivity and exile. Ezra and Nehemiah complete the story for us of what's happening to God's people in the Old Testament. And they're a reminder to us that God always gets the last word. So they are important in that regard. 
The other thing you need to know about Ezra and Nehemiah is who they are named after. Ezra and Nehemiah are named after the, 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 most, the prominent characters whose memoirs are presented, whose memoirs are featured in these texts. The book of Ezra is named after Ezra, who was both a priest and a scribe, according to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 11. And he's not only a prominent character in the book's narrative, but he is at the very least a contributor to the text because much of Ezra chapter 7 through 9 are his first-person account of what happened. Similarly, Nehemiah is a prominent character in the book that is after him. He was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, according to Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 11. He was eventually appointed to the position in the province of Judea that would be similar to a governor, and much of the book of Nehemiah, particularly chapters 1 through chapter 7, uh, much of chapter 12, and much of chapter 13, are his first-person accounts. And so because we have these, ma- these large sections of these two books that are first-person narratives of these two key characters, the books are named after them, Ezra and Nehemiah. And one last thing I want you to know about Ezra and Nehemiah is that they record events that took place between 538 and 433 B.C., approximately. There are several time stamps identified in these two books. And you can kind of see a, a timeline that I put at the top of this screen to let you pick these things out. But if you go to Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, it opens with a reference to the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, as the time when the first group of Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem. And thanks to archaeological evidence and history that we have access to, we know this would have begun. This return, this first return, would have begun around 538 B.C. Then you can go to Ezra chapter 6 and verse 15. It informs us that the temple was finished in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. This correlates with 516 B.C. It means that it took the returnees 22 years to finish building the temple, and we'll discover why that is when we get further into this study in a few weeks. At this point, I, I want to make reference to something that's not in the book of Nehemiah, just for the sake of your mind being able to comprehend events. But the events of Esther unfold approximately 33 years after the completion of the temple. The book of Esther opens with reference to the third year of King ah- Ahasuerus, who is known also as Xerxes. And the events of Esther continue through the 12th year of his reign, according to Esther chapter 3 and verse 7. So the events of Esther span approximately 10 years that situate right here in the middle of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Just to help you get that, your mind centered on where these things take place. Then if you go to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 7, you find out that Ezra went to Jerusalem with the wave of returnees in the 7th year of Artaxerxes the king. That would have been 458 B.C. The opening events of Nehemiah make reference to the 20th year of King Artaxerxes in chapter 2 and verse 1. That means that Nehemiah escorted the third group of exiles back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 445 B.C. And the last time stamp we have comes in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 6, where we're told that Nehemiah returned to Persia in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. This would have occurred in 433 B.C. And then after some time, some unspecified amount of time, Nehemiah made one final trip to Jerusalem, but we don't know exactly when or how long that, that he was there. But this means that Nehemiah and Ezra's events take place over a hundred-year period. And just to frame this, these events are happening 
four to five hundred years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. And about five hundred years after the reign of King David. Just to put that in perspective. We're smack dab in the middle between David, the king after God's own heart, who serves as a messianic forerunner for Jesus, and the Messiah entering the world in the form of a baby. We're about halfway between those two events. And with all that background information to help escort us into this study that will take multiple weeks into the future, let's now dive into Ezra chapter 1, and I'm only making two points on Ezra chapter 1 today. Turn your attention back to those first four verses that we read a moment ago, and I'm going to read them again. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor, whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice, if you look at the screen, I've put the scripture reading up there, and I want you to notice... In that scripture reading, how many times Cyrus's name gets mentioned? I've highlighted those in red for you. Three times Cyrus is named in these opening verses. And then I want you to notice how many times reference is made to the Lord and to the other descriptive phrases associated with him, such as the God of heaven, the God of Israel, and the God, is who in, the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus gets mentioned three times. God gets mentioned seven times. I point that out because what's happening here in the opening verses of Ezra is not about Cyrus, is not about Persia, is not about a king on earth. It's about God. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah is about God, as it should be. We need to keep that framework in mind. Because as we talk about construction, particularly as it pertains to our lives, we need to understand that God is the architect. He's the architect of the decree that Cyrus will make in this chapter, and he's the architect of our lives. So when it comes to the construction projects of Ezra and Nehemiah, it is evident from the very first verse of these books that God, is the great architect, that God is the one who's designed and planned all this, that God is the one behind the scenes bringing all things into fruition. And do you know why God is the great architect? First and foremost, he is the great architect because he never forgets his promises. In that scripture reading, in those first four verses of Ezra, actually in the very first verse of Ezra chapter 1, Did you notice the reference to Jeremiah? There's a callback to the prophecies of Jeremiah in that very first verse. It says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet during the final days of the southern kingdom 
of the southern kingdom's independence prior to being taken captive by Babylon. He prophesied that Jerusalem would fall and the children of Israel would be taken captive. And these prophecies were rejected by the people of Israel at that time. And as a result, Jeremiah was viewed kind of as an outcast, as a false prophet. He was persecuted and imprisoned and spent much of his time in misery. He's often known as the weeping prophet because of just how difficult his life was as a prophet. Among Jeremiah's prophecies that Ezra appears to be referring are Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 11, in which he used the same stirred-up language that appears here in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1 to show that God would move one of the kings of the Medes. The Medes are a reference to the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. He would move one of the kings of the Medes to destroy Babylon in an act of vengeance for their destruction of his temple. And Jeremiah's prophecy combined with its fulfillment in Ezra indicates that the Lord caused Cyrus's rise to power, which resulted in the defeat of the Babylonian Empire, and this defeat satisfied God's anger for the destruction of the temple. And so when we look here at Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, we see the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 11, but we also see the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11. And chapter 29 and verse 10, where Jeremiah prophesied that God's people would return to their land after 70 years in captivity. Two different prophecies in Jeremiah referencing those 70 years. Now the first deportation of Israelites by the Babylonians occurred in 605 B.C. And their first return occurred in 538 B.C., resulting in a span of 67 years, which is almost how many? 70 And that might not be exact enough for you to go, okay, that's fulfilled prophecy. Well, then consider this. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And its reconstruction was completed in 516 B.C. Guess what? That's exactly 70 years. God fulfilled his prophecy of time through Jeremiah. And here's the point. The fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecies, they remind us that God always keeps his word. That God keeps every promise he ever makes. That you can rely on God. That you can know that whatever he says, he will do. Because he keeps his word, even if it takes him 70 years to get to it. In fact, It's God's promise-keeping nature that prompts the biblical authors to assert that he does not, cannot, and will not lie. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 29, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, all make reference to God's inability to lie. The author of Hebrews said, it is impossible, it is impossible, it is impossible for God to to lie. And they refer to this as an unchangeable truth. So God is the great architect in part because he never forgets his promises. He always keeps his word. That's how he ensures that his design, that his plans, that his will comes to fruition. 
And so as we dive into Ezra and Nehemiah, recognize this one thing. As you think about construction in your own life, think about this one thing, that God keeps his word. That's more than he can say. That's more than anyone can say about anybody that's ever walked this earth. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. That is reassuring. That should give us confidence in whatever construction's happening in our lives. But that's not the only thing we learn about God here in the first few verses of Ezra chapter 1. So you got to think, here we are in Ezra chapter 1. Here we are with talking about a people who have been in captivity for 70 years. God's people at this point had witnessed the domination of three different world empires. They watched the Assyrians rise to power and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and take them captive. They watched the Babylonians rise to power, conquer the Assyrians, and then come along and conquer the southern kingdom and take those Israelites captive. And then they watched as the Persian Empire rose up and conquered the Babylonians. But it's a whole new ball game with the Persians. See, at this point in history, the Jews had experienced the demise of their own society, once great society. They've witnessed and experienced the destruction of their place of worship. They've witnessed and experienced the deportation of their people. All at the hands of an unchosen, non-Yahweh-worshipping people. How is it in their minds that these people who don't fear the Lord, these uncircumcised, non-God-worshipping people have all the power and we're subjugated to it? Can you put yourself in their shoes? No other era in their history save those years of enslavement in Egypt was as demoralizing as this one. And like their ancestors in Egypt, I'm certain they came to the point that they were wondering where God is. And then in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, we're told the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. In other words, God interceded God returned to the story, even though he never actually left. God came to their rescue. See, God is the great architect because he is always in control. We don't need to forget that. God is always in control, even when it seems like he's not. You know, Cyrus identified God as the one who has given him all the kingdoms of the earth and had charged him with the responsibility of building him a temple at Jerusalem. Now that may sound like Cyrus is a worshiper of the one true God, but that's not exactly the case. Back in 1879, archaeologists discovered this, this uh, clay cylinder. And it has this inscription on it all the way around. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder because it is an inscription detailing some of his conquests and some of his decrees. And on it we find out that Cyrus actually let many different ethnic groups 
who were deported by the Babylonians return to their homelands and rebuild their places of worship. Cyrus did this for every group he could. Do you know why? Because Cyrus was polytheistic. Cyrus wanted every deity on his side. And so he sent everyone back to their homeland, had them go back and rebuild their place of worship, go back and restart their religion with one request. You petition your deity on my behalf for me to have a long life and a long reign and that I'm going to do well. Cyrus was selfish. Let's just face it. But that didn't stop God from using Cyrus. God still enters the story because God's in control, not Cyrus. God's the one acting, not Cyrus. God's the one who's coordinating this behind the scenes, not Cyrus. And here's the point. The fact that Cyrus ended up doing the bidding of Yahweh indicates that God is truly the king of kings. Sometimes it's easy for us to forget who's ultimately in control. We look around at the world and we think governments have too much control, celebrities have too much influence, the wealthy 1% have too much power. Then we look around the world and on top of all those things, we see the abundance of wickedness and sin and suffering that exists in this fallen world because we're because there is one who is the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the God of this age, and we know him as Satan. And we look around and we go, how is anyone else in control? This place is miserable. This place is sin-sick. This place is evil and wicked. This world is under the control of so many others. And we're suffering at their hands. We're suffering at the hands of people who pass laws that we don't agree with. We're suffering at the hands of people who act unjustly. We're suffering at the hands of people who are unethical, who are prejudiced, who abuse their positions of power and their wealth. But they're not really in control. It's so easy for us to feel like the world is out of control. But Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1 reminds us that even when God's people think things are out of control, He is still in control, working behind the scenes to accomplish His will in His time through His people. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of what Paul said about our God in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. We need to remember that God is King of kings and the only sovereign. That's ultimately the message of Revelation. I've come to a conclusion in in my study of Ezra and Nehemiah in particular that the book of Revelation is the closest thing we'll ever read in the New Testament to a version of Ezra and Nehemiah. Think about it. Revelation foretells the end of the story. Ezra and Nehemiah show how God remained in control despite the presence of world powers who persecuted his people. And in the end, he escorted 
accepted his people to the promised land where they were able to worship him again in Jerusalem. Revelation recounts the persecution of Christians. The persecution they were enduring during the reign of the Roman Empire. And then it rolls back the curtain to show God seated on his throne in heaven and reveals his plan to punish Rome, to defeat Satan, and to lead his people to a new Jerusalem where they will be able to worship him forever. The book of Revelation is a story of God in control. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah are a story of God in control as well. And all too often, as his people, we forget that he's in control. We put our blinders on and we're only focused on what we can see here and now. And we forget that behind the scenes, the king of kings reigns. And so God is the great architect. God is the great architect because he always keeps his word. And God is the great architect because he's always in control. But what does this have to do with us? And what does this have to do with construction? Well, to some degree, all of us are in the construction business. Maybe you're young and you're trying to figure out who you are, what you want to do with your life, and what you want to be known for. Ultimately, you're in the process of constructing your identity. Maybe you've, uh, you're in the process of trying to find a mate. Or, or maybe you've succeeded in finding a mate and you're trying to have kids. Or maybe you've succeeded in both finding fate and having children, and now you're just trying to survive each day. Regardless which of those three scenarios you fall into, you're in the process of constructing a family. Maybe you're older. You don't have children in your home anymore. You're in the waning years of your life, and you're trying to make the best use of, of what time you have left, and you're trying to make a positive impact on the lives of others before your time is up. That may mean you're in the process of constructing your legacy. Maybe you're starting to believe the things that are taught in the Bible. Maybe you're contemplating the decision to follow Jesus by putting him on in baptism. Maybe you're even taking that step, but you're still growing as a disciple. And you're in the process of constructing your faith. Maybe you've got some tough decisions to make. Maybe you're going to have to take a stand for the truth and that can lead to some consequences personally, professionally, relationship, relationally, or even legally. Or maybe you're preparing to step out of your comfort zone. Maybe you've recognized the need to do something in the kingdom that you've always avoided. Whether you're preparing to take a stand or step out of your comfort zone, you're probably in the process of constructing or building courage. Maybe you've lost a loved one in your mourning. Maybe you're dealing with the pain of grief. And right now, you're just trying to rebuild your broken heart. Maybe you've been hurt by someone. Maybe there's been some wounds and some baggage that have damaged a particular relationship in your life. And as a result, you're in the process of rebuilding trust. Maybe you're struggling with temptation. Maybe some personal habits or some poor decisions or some exposed weaknesses have caused you to venture back into sin 
And now you're in the process of rebuilding fidelity to the Lord. Maybe you're struggling spiritually. Maybe you've endured some storms that have caused you to question God, His Word, or His church. And you're in the process of rebuilding your faith. Regardless of what construction project your life is working on, you can face it with confidence that God keeps His promises. That includes His promise to provide a way out of temptation in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. That includes His promise to never forsake us in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. That includes His promise to provide what we need if we seek Him first in Matthew chapter 6. That includes His promise to give us rest if we will come to Him in Matthew chapter 11. That includes His promise to forgive the sins of those who confess their sins in 1 John chapter 1 and His promise to never stop loving us in Romans chapter 8. His faithfulness to His promises should influence every phase of your life's construction because it means you can move forward with the confidence that He will do His part no matter what. And regardless of what construction project your life is working on right now, you should be able to move forward with the awareness that no matter what happens next, God's got it. God's in control. His eternal reign should influence every phase of your life's construction because in the end, you're going to have to answer to the King of Kings, the one and only Sovereign. See, Ezra and Nehemiah they're going to have a lot to say about construction. But they start right here. They start right here with the great architect. The one who has the architectural design already planned out. But here's the fascinating thing. An architect can design. An architect can plan. An architect can create. But an architect is going to need workers to help bring that into fruition. And it's very interesting if you look one last time at Ezra chapter 1 and you look at the fifth verse, what you find out is that Cyrus is not the only person that God stirred up to act. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord. God can motivate, God can stir up, God can initiate, but He still needs you to move. He still needs you to go up. That's what we're going to be talking about as we study Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's the invitation we offer today. Is it time for you to move in the direction of your Lord? If so, I invite you to come. All together we stand and sing.